0: This is David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 5, War and Pieces, Part 2. In Part 1 of this episode, I probably spent entirely too much time setting the scene for the fourth in this series of 12 games that trace the arc of the modern art of tabletop, but that's the problem when you've spent almost all of your life immersed in a hobby— in this case, conflict simulations or war games, and want to get across not just its history, but what drew you to it. So now I'm going to have to work fast, but that's okay. I'm up for the challenge. We left off with the rise of GMT games out of the ashes of the crumbling golden age of hex encounter war games. GMT's pre order system kept it alive and independent in an era when the original and dominant publishers were merging and being bought up. Mark Herman, the designer of the first car-driven war game, We the People, started his career at Avalon Hill, but moved to GMT when Avalon Hill went belly-up in the mid-1990s. Herman went on to design other fine and innovative games, but the banner for car-driven games was taken up by Ted Racer also at GMT, who, with 1999's Paths of Glory and 2002's Barbarossa to Berlin, proved that the car-driven game system worked for World War I and World War II, respectively. Paths of Glory even won the Charles Roberts Award for Best Pre-World War II Game in 1999, showing how much the hobby had moved to embrace that genre. It was in this environment that two young men, Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta met at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Neither of them were students there, but there was a tabletop gaming club at GWU, and Matthews and Gupta had friends who were students there, so they hopped on board. They were both big fans of what were still being called German games, with the area control game El Grande being one of their favorites. Matthews' day job was a legislative director for a U.S. senator, and Gupta had dropped out of computer science to design video games and do policy work at a think tank. He was also a GMT playtester, and often asked Matthews to be his playtest opponent. And after playing other people's prototypes for a while, they began to think that they could do better. A lot of war games got played at the club, but Matthews and Gupta had left school to start careers and families, so like many other in this younger generation, they had less time and patience for the fat rule books and epic playing times of some of the classics. They wanted to prove that We the People was not an anomaly, that it was possible to design other games that were historical and playable. Their first idea for a game was the Spanish Civil War. Notice how they wanted to avoid overexplored eras such as the Napoleonic Wars or World War II. But they abandoned their original idea after realizing how much research they would have to do to do it justice. Besides, they found out another Spanish Civil War game was soon going to be published by a Spanish designer, no less, and how could you compete with that kind of expertise? So Ananda Gupta suggested a plan B. How about a game about the Cold War? To Matthews, this was a stroke of genius. He just spent four years studying the Cold War as an international relations major, so most of the required knowledge was at his fingertips. Plus. He'd spent countless hours playing Balance of Power, an early computer game about the Cold War, which gave him plenty of ideas about how to bring that world of paranoia and brinksmanship to tabletop form. Not only that, but it turned out that Gene Billingsley, the G in GMT, was a huge Cold War fan, if you can use the word fan in this context, and felt that it was an undervalued theme worth exploring. He championed it from the very first. Ananda and Matthews began working on a prototype inspired both by the card-driven point-to-point play of We the People in Paths of Glory and the dilemma and decision-making mechanics of Eurogames. Gupta took the lead in designing the game's systems, while Matthews was the natural choice for figuring out how to translate the history into gameplay terms. They began to bring out their new prototype to demo at conventions. And the game that came out of that prototype was our next game changer, Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is a two-player game with one player taking the role of the United States and the other player, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The winner is the player with the most points after nine turns. But the game can also end immediately if one player scores a knockout blow by having 20 or more points than the other, or if someone blows up the world, about which more a little bit later. Points are scored mainly by spreading influence throughout the world on a point to point map split into seven regions where each point is a different country. Originally, each country was rated for its terrain and population, but that was later thrown out in the interest of simplification. On the final map, each country gets one rating for its political stability. The higher the rating, the more influence it takes to control it, and the more difficult it is to change that control. Both sides use operations points to place influence in any country, as long as they have influence in a connected country, a direct, if implicit reference to the domino theory first articulated by President Eisenhower during the Korean War players can also conduct dice-driven realignments and coup d'etat for more dramatic swings in support. Some pivotal countries, such as Cuba, West Germany, Japan, are designated to be battleground countries, and controlling them means more victory points during scoring. But conducting coup d'etat there lowers the DEFCON. And as the DEFCON lowers, players get more and more constrained in what they can do so things get more and more tense. At DEFCON 1, nuclear war breaks out, the game ends, and the player who triggered it loses. Matthews and Gupta were adamantly against an everybody loses ending, which they felt, probably quite rightly, would be too tempting an option if a player was too far behind. The core and defining mechanic of Twilight Struggle is the event deck. To come up with the events in the deck, Matthews went year by year through the years 1945 to 1989 and made a list of pivotal events, and then decided what effect each would have on the game. The hard part was trimming the list down. Interesting events would be cut from the list if they didn't directly affect the conflict between the superpowers. Even China was originally left out entirely, and then abstracted into the game with a card called the China Card, a reference to President Richard Nixon's dramatic 1972 visit to China signaling a thawing of relations between the two countries. Ironically, the earliest citation I can find for the phrase the China Card is from former Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev in 1978. At the beginning of each of the game's nine turns, each player is dealt a hand of cards some are favorable to the US, others to the USSR, others are neutral, and a few trigger scoring in one of the game's regions, with points going to each player depending on how many battleground countries they control, as well as their level of presence, control, or dominance in the region, a mechanic which Matthews acknowledged was lifted from an old Evalon Hill game called A History of the World. All non-scoring cards also have a numeric rating which allow them to be used for operations to expand influence, progress in the space race, or conduct coup d'etat. If you play a card with a favorable or neutral event, you can use it for the event or for operations, but not both. But if you use a card favorable to your opponent, your opponent gets to trigger the event, always. Your only choice is whether to trigger the event before or after you take your action using the operations points on the card. The forced triggering of opposing events was what Gupta called a lightning bolt of inspiration, which elegantly solved two problems they had in early playtesting. One was not enough events were being triggered, which made the game feel dry and abstract. Two, there wasn't enough dramatic tension in the game. After they made the change, the game not only felt more grounded in history and thematic because of the events, it also added a layer of anxiety and dread when you looked at your hand at the beginning of the turn and saw all the potential enemy events that could be triggered that round. Add to this the fact that you're forced to play most of your cards every turn, and Twilight Struggle becomes a game full of agonizing decisions and managing or minimizing disasters. Should I play this card which helps my opponent now, or later? Should I conduct a coup, even if it brings the world closer to nuclear destruction? Does my opponent have a scoring card, and if so, which one? Where should I be expanding my influence? Using cards hugely reduced the need for complicated rules to simulate the political realities of the era, and all the hidden information and agonizing dilemmas simulated the paranoia and uncertainty perfectly. Right from the start, Gupta and Matthews knew they had something. Their prototype always attracted interested onlookers at conventions, and its inclusion on GMT's P500 list meant they could proceed with confidence knowing the game would probably be published. It took 18 months to reach the 500 pre-orders necessary to trigger a first printing in 2005. The turning point came at the 2006 gathering of friends, the annual meeting of the tabletop tribes hosted by Alan R. Moon. That's right, the guy from episode 4 who designed Ticket to Ride. Moon played the game and called Twilight Struggle, quote, the best game I've ever played, unquote. Public praise from such a prominent designer lit the match. Within three months, the first printing sold out. Over the next two years, Twilight Struggle's success helped GMT's overall sales increase by 40%. It's now on its seventh printing in English. It's also available in 10 other languages, including, of course, Russian. It swept up multiple awards in the year after it was released, including the 2005 Charles Roberts Award for Best Modern Era Board Game, which signaled its acceptance from the wargamer crowd, as well as the 2006 Golden Geek Award on BoardGameGeek for Best Wargame and Best Two-Player Game, which reflected its popularity in the broader tabletop population. One reason for Twilight Struggle's success was that it managed to be a political game without any perceived political agenda. It did so partially with the use of humor. The Kitchen Debates event card overtly directed you to poke your opponent in the chest, as Khrushchev did to Nixon, before scoring two victory points. The How I Learned to Stop Worrying card was a direct reference to Stanley Kubrick's dark satire Dr. Strangelove. Matthews also felt that another factor in Twilight Struggle's success was a kind of Cold War nostalgia that crept in after 9-11. With the benefit of rose-colored glasses, the Soviet Union seemed to many people like a much more manageable threat than the amorphous War on Terror. It was enormously gratifying to Matthews that people born after the fall of the Berlin Wall had used the game as an entry point to learn the history of the whole Cold War era. Twilight Struggle also gave Matthews the credibility to get other designs published. He went on to design other politically-themed games. Some borrowed their mechanics directly from Twilight Struggle, like 1960, The Making of the President, and 1989, Dawn of Freedom. The former covered the presidential contest between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. The latter was almost a sequel to Twilight Struggle, covering the end of communism in Eastern Europe. Matthews also explored new game design territory in his game about the writing of the U.S. Constitution, Founding Fathers. Ananda Gupta, on the other hand, continued to work in the video game industry and raising a family, only recently returning to tabletop design with Matthews for a highly anticipated prequel of sorts to Twilight Struggle based on the 18th century rivalry between France and Great Britain. Unsurprisingly, GMT has christened it Imperial Struggle. Brand name recognition. After all, putting Matthews, Gupta, and Twilight Struggle in the context of modern tabletop, the closest analogy I can think of, and it's far from perfect, is the band The Birds, specifically the first album, Mr. Tambourine Man. Like Roger McGuinn and David Crosby, Matthews and Gupta were steeped in an old tradition – folk music for the former, hex and counter war games for the latter – but we're looking for ways to make that tradition more accessible to a broader audience by integrating that tradition with a newer aesthetic. Beatles-style rock and roll on the one hand, German game design on the other. The results in both cases were at first looked on with suspicion by old-timers and traditionalists who were wary of watering down their beloved canon, but embraced by a new generation that wasn't as bound by precedent, and loved the combination of more serious themes presented in a fresh way. Unlike bird-style folk rock, though, just in terms of game design, Twilight Struggle has relatively few direct descendants, although it opened the door for a slew of Cold War-themed games. Most of Twilight Struggle's descendants are also about politics. Free at Last by Ted Jorgensen took on the theme of civil rights in the United States in the 1960s. Jorgensen went on to collaborate with Matthews on the 1989 game. And in 2010, Volko Runke, a former national security analyst for the CIA, designed what I consider to be the truest sequel to Twilight Struggle. Labyrinth, The War on Terror, whose title pretty well sums up what that game is about. Twilight Struggle is a game changer because games about war had been verboten in the first generation of modern tabletop, which had arisen out of a Germany trying to live down its warlike past. After it appeared, it became acceptable and more common for Euros to have war and conflict themes. Martin Wallace designed several games about famous 19th-century battles such as Gettysburg and Waterloo, and used deck-building mechanics in A Few Acres of Snow, his game about the Seven Years' War. That's the French and Indian War for you Americans. Polish publishers Phalanx put out Race for the Rhine, a fascinating three-player game which concentrated on the logistics of the final Allied push on the Western Front in World War II and publishers Academy Games released a line of designs covering American wars of the 18th and 19th centuries, as well as Freedom the Underground Railroad, a cooperative game about the abolitionist movement. 2019 also saw the release of the excellent two-player game Watergate, a game which in some ways outdoes Twilight Struggle in terms of boiling down a complex socio-political conflict into a short, tense, and above all, fun and playable game. All of these games found wider audiences because they duplicated Twilight Struggle's template of being accessible and playable in an evening while still providing enough meat on the bones for more hardcore wargamers. Of course, the ultimate sign of Twilight Struggle's embraced by the wider tabletop community was its arrival at number one on BoardGameGeek's rating chart in late 2010. It stayed there for almost five years until December of 2015, second only to Puerto Rico in its stay as the highest-rated game in tabletop, at least according to the notoriously snobby and hard-to-please cognoscenti who populate it. But arguably the most commercially successful game that hit the sweet spot between Euro and Wargame came out just before Twilight Struggle, in 2004, on the 60th anniversary of the Allied landings in Normandy. Days of Wonder, publishers of the phenomenally successful gateway game Ticket to Ride, which you know about from episode four, released a game called Memoir 44 by designer Richard Borg. Yes, you heard me right, Star Trek TNG fans, Borg. And yes, I also found it ominous. Memoir 44 was a tactical miniatures game. Its 15 scenarios were all small-scale battles between United States and German troops, starting with the Normandy landings, going all the way to the very last days of World War II. Adapting a system he'd introduced with Avalon Hill in 2000's Civil War game Battlecry, Borg's emphasis, like Matthews and Gupta, was on playability rather than realism. Memoir 44 looked like a tactical miniatures game. Battles played out on a hexagonal grid with miniature infantry and tanks and guns and even little barbed wire and sandbag defenses. But the rules for the game took up only 12 highly illustrated pages, so it could be learned and taught in 15 minutes. This is because it lacked rules for things that most tactical war games had, things like morale and line of sight, and different kinds of weaponry and ammunition. But it more than made up for that with its card-driven command system, which managed to convey the frustrations and tensions of leading and coordinating troops. As successful as Memoir 44 was, both as a design and as a product, it wasn't a game-changer in my opinion, the way that Twilight Struggle was. I've already explained how Twilight Struggle influenced tabletop culture. But unlike Memoir 44, it has also been embraced as a teaching tool. It and its successors, particularly Labyrinth, have reached beyond tabletop entirely into classrooms, seminars, and training sessions for military and intelligence personnel. Our next Game Changer takes us back to Germany, and one of Tabletop's premier designers who'd already designed one very popular series of games based on a very unusual theme and mechanic. Now, he was about to turn the hardship of 17th century farming into one of the most popular games in Tabletop history. That was Part 2 of Episode 5 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time and don't flip that table.